everybody. Welcome back to the show. Today, I have Paul Tamarello on the podcast. He is the owner of Generator Real Estate and Development, and he has a lot of experience in a lot of different areas, just not just with real estate, but in business overall. So I'm really excited for this conversation. Paul, welcome. Uh, thank you for having me, Steve. I'm excited to be here and uh, checking in with you and your audience. Well, check this out. So when I was younger, I used to be like really worried about getting older. So when I, I started going bald when I was 16 years old and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going bald. What am I going to do? You know, I'm never going to find a girlfriend, let alone a wife. And then I got, you know, I embraced it, but then I thought, okay, as I get older, oh my gosh, I want to get older, but you know what? Dang, you're good looking, huh? So you just give me hope that, you know, I'm just going to maybe look better and better as age goes on. So who knows? Oh, oh, oh you're saying, no, my friend, it's you. Yeah. You're the you're the fitness uh, guru, and uh, yeah, Looking you're good. So you're all refined. Okay, so th- th- let's talk about let's go backwards in time, though. Let's go back to your upbringing, because you know, as people will realize in this podcast, you have your hands in so many different things. So I'm so curious, like, what was your upbringing like? Were you this entrepreneur, idea generating person who is just like moving and shaking? Were you like quiet and shy? Were you outgoing? Like, what was your upbringing like, and what kind of things were you actually interested in? Hmm. Oh man, um, I'm just trying to think. I, uh, I mean, I was uh, always resourceful. You know, I got a paper route as soon as I could get a paper route and ride a bike. You know, strong enough to ride a bike with a load of papers. I got a paper route, and I don't think I've not had a job since. So I would say that was like, you know, gosh, I bet it was as early as maybe fourth or fifth grade. I uh, started delivering papers and, uh, and then kind of, you know, kept trying to expand my, my uh, newspaper delivery empire. And, uh, <laughs> um, and yeah, I loved it. I always had a good time with it. I, I've always, Honestly, starting with something as simple as that, I've really pretty much always enjoyed what I was doing. I've never had a job long enough to hate it, hmm. which I'm, I'm proud to say. <laughs> so, we, I mean, so with your paper out, like, did you do that out of necessity? You, your family didn't have a lot of money or you didn't have a lot of money or you just liked working? Oh. Like, what was it about it that just drove you to work and then you never stopped? Well, you know, I'm not a big fan of people telling like, you know, woe is me. I grew up with four kid stories, right? Um, I think every family had challenges on some level. My father was the oldest boy of 12 children. And during the Depression, my grandfather was a Sicilian immigrant and he emptied ash pits, right? Basically, he was a trash man back in the days and everybody burnt their trash. And my... uh, uh, my dad, when he was just got out of fourth grade, um, quit school to help, you know, double or try to double the income that he was bringing in to feed these 11 kids, right? These 12 yeah. kids. And um, and he never went back. So, you know, my father was most of my life uh, was, I don't know if you would call it illiterate, but he couldn't write. Mm-hmm. Um, as he got older, he learned to read and, and, uh, you know, in his later years, you know, became, you know, pretty proficient in reading, 
But for most of my childhood, he was what I guess some people would consider illiterate. Um, he drove a forklift for a living. And, you know, we had five kids in our family and we struggled. You know, my mom uh, was kind of balancing between a stay-at-home mom and then she did cafeteria work and kind of worked at department stores. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I but I didn't feel like the pressure of having a job when I was a kid, yeah. right? Like, I mean, they provided, we always had food on the table and whatever. I'm not saying we, you know, we ate a, a whole lot of salmon patties and, uh, you know, uh, farina uh, cheese for anybody who's been on government assistance, they'll know what farina is. But <laughs> um, so, you know, back in the days when we were kids, yeah, we struggled. Yeah. Uh, powdered milk oh, to this day, it makes me gag. But I still never felt like this, like necessity. I did it because I enjoyed it. I, I, I liked it. Right. Mm-hmm. So then, so then how did you get into real estate? I'm sure there's a lot of um, experiences in between, you know, your paper out and getting into real estate, but jumping <laughs> forward, how did you get into real estate initially? And and what was your interest there? Yeah. You know, I, as a young kid, um, you know, had a lot of interests always. And I had a brother who was also just incredibly like creative. He was always into a million things as well. And I kind of would watch him go from thing to thing and you know, uh, I think I got a little bit of that bug from him and yeah, he, he, my brother is super creative and I think he sort of instilled in me this desire to create as well. You know, my father wasn't around a lot just because he literally had kind of three jobs. I mean, I always tell people I never drove anywhere on the street with my dad. We always went down the alleys everywhere we went because he was always picking up stuff to sell. Right. So he was right. picking up wire and old engine blocks, anything he, we could find. He scrapped metal. He, you know, f- found old bikes and fixed them up and sold them or still chest. He would clean up and sell at a garage sale. So, I mean, we never drove anywhere on the street. It was always down the alleys. Um, but my brother had this like, and my dad was very creative and was just this charismatic, amazing person. And my, my, brother was this like kind of creative and off the rails and uh and then my mom was the person who kind of held everything together right she was like just that total unsung hero but how i got into real estate is a very kind of odd way i had a cousin early on in life who got into real estate and did really well and he was about maybe eight years older than i am so i kind of watched him do that but i kind of didn't know how to do it when i graduated high school I uh, went to community college uh, for just about a year. And honestly, I was just bored, senseless. Like I was like, I, this is like, really? And I had a bunch of friends that were in college and other places. And honestly, I just kind of really, I think it was Mark Twain. He said, I never let education get in the way of my learning yeah, <laughs> um, or something like that. And yeah. I honestly, that's when I started my first company. Uh, I started a window washing company and then uh, did that for a few years. And then I started painting houses and I I started a house painting company and a wallpaper hanging company. And I just kind of, I would have an interest in something and I would just go start a job. So I learned how to, you know, get a logo, start doing marketing, get an EIN number, do your taxes, you know, some of the, just the basics of running a company, right? Back in the days, it wasn't nearly as complicated as it is now. And I really felt like that was 
uh, sort of the incubator for, you know, how I operate in my life now. But I did that for a few years and had two or three different companies. And then I had a big aha moment in my life, sort of, let's call it spiritually. And so then I went to go work uh, as a youth minister and okay. worked for the Catholic Archdiocese for about 12 years. Um, during that time, I went uh, and studied theology uh, at St. Thomas Seminary for two years. It was a master's program, but I didn't finish my undergrad, so I had to audit it. But it was, you know, it was an amazing experience for me. I really enjoyed it. But, you know, worked for the diocese again for about 12 years. That all culminated. One of the companies I started was also a music production company and ran that for about seven or eight years, brought in all kinds of acts to Red Rocks and Paramount Theater and did a bunch of stuff. But when the Pope came to Denver, um, the Archdiocese asked if I would produce the papal welcome at Mile High Stadium, which was, you know, it was an incredible honor. And it was like 80,000 people. And we had, you know, we had 23 different musical acts. We had up with people with all three, all five of their casts in town doing flags and 500 people. And it was, it was an amazing, amazing activity. Um, the prep for it was incredible. The execution of the day, I stage managed the whole show, got to meet the Pope. Um, it was, you know, it was a real, a really cool thing for me. But kind of at the end of all that, you know, I kind of got back into doing my work. And then I just decided I really needed to move on. I needed to do something different. So I went and got my real estate license. And what was incredible is, you know, when you work with kids, you really build this relationship with tr- of trust with families and kids. And right after I got my license, all these families were like, oh my gosh, we'd love to work with you to be our realtor. And so I was just selling residential real estate, you know, just doing brokerage and loved it. Just, I still love it. I love walking through houses and I love that moment when you're working with a client and they're like, this is where I want to make my home. Right. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's, it's like, uh, yeah, it's really a, a privilege to be able to work with folks to help them find that place where they want to raise their babies, you know, have get married, do all, you know, all those things, you know, that are just amazing to do, have your partner and whatever. So I loved it and did pretty much just residential brokerage for about probably eight years. And during that time, occasionally I would get into working with a commercial client, a land client, you know, some of that stuff, a couple developers. And, uh, and then that's how I began to kind of get an interest in doing development. So I had a business partner. His name was Mark Brannon. He is the most creative, fun, wacky, risk-taking real estate guy I know. And honestly, he taught me how to take a risk. You know, he he taught me, you know, what it takes to do that, which I would say nowadays is its own currency. Meaning I think risk is risk taking risk taking is a currency. I, you know, this is, uh, I'm not slamming on MBAs, but I can tell you in real estate, there is a point where you just have to take a risk. And I have sat with MBAs who are looking at deals and they run the numbers so thorough. They talk themselves out of them every time Hmm. (laughs) and they don't make great 
I mean, I'm sure someone will hear this and give me a nasty email or something, but <laughs> uh, particularly when it comes to adaptive reuse, like if you're looking at just a blank piece of dirt, you can't find a better person to run numbers than somebody who has, you know, extensive background and obviously an MBA or something in real estate, but, but it still takes risk. And at some point, if you're doing what, which is what I do the most of is adaptive reuse old buildings, there is no amount of due diligence that will protect you from just the inherent value of taking over an old building yeah, or the inherent risk of taking over an old building. So anyway, Mark taught me how to take risk. And, so let uh, me interrupt you real quick. So sure. before Mark, were you risk adverse? Like with your other businesses, you know, you had all these um, businesses that you're starting, were you more <laughs> risk adverse or did Mark teach you how to take calculated risk? Because it's not like you're just out there winging it and doing a bunch of random things, taking on crazy risks. I think you take calculated risks and I think you're very smart in that that way. And then also answer this as well with that that question. So were you more risk averse before? Did Mark teach you? that? That's part of it. But also going back to studying in, in the, the spiritual side of that, that whole time in your life, did that like instill a, a certain type of faith in you, which then prepared you to take more risks as well. Cause you, you have to have that faith hmm. and that hope into the future and maybe tie those two things together. Yeah. Okay. That's a great question, Steve. I would say, no, I was not risk adverse before, but I'd also never taken the level of risk that I started to take with Mark. Okay. So, um, you know, uh, dropping out of college, um, starting my own companies. Uh, I was always taking risk, right? And 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 loved it. And I would say part of that really came from my father, who I think, you know, I didn't have any kids. I don't have a family. And so for me to take risk was different than what this situation my dad was in, where, you know, he had five kids and a house payment and everything. And, um, you know, but I remember as a kid, we'd drive places and he'd be like, man, Paul, if I just had money, I could have bought that house for you know, $6,000 or I could have, and I know that sounds crazy now, but literally yeah. the house I grew up in, my dad paid $6,000 for it. It's crazy. So, yeah. you know, now that house is probably worth $800,000 or something, you know, right. it, it, but I'm just saying, I remember him saying that often and I never wanted to, you know, I kind of always felt bad that he never felt like he had that opportunity because uh, he could have done anything. I mean, he, I mean, he raised five kids, put us all through parochial schools on a, you know, you know, with no education, driving a forklift for a living, right? He was yeah. it, he was a resourceful guy, if nothing else. So, no, I think I took risk, but Mark taught me on a grander scale. Let's put it that way, right? Well, you know, just I bought to my think first like house. bigger, just like think bigger, like expand your your thinking, or or what exactly? Well. Well, I mean, it was about numbers, right? I remember when, um, you know, I had done several little fix and flip houses and stuff and bought stuff and fixed them up and uh, this and that. But I remember we together, Mark and I, our first big project was an, a ground up new construction deal. Um, and I'll never forget, we went in to sign the loan. The loan was $5 million. And this is back in 2000. And I, it was it, it was the process at least the paperwork side of it was less than getting a car loan. Really? And yeah. I remember walking out of there going, Oh my gosh, I just signed up for $5 million. I was terrified. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, um, 
you know, we started construction and we're going out of the ground. We built a, you know, the six story building, you know, all post-tension concrete, 24 units. And then of course, 9-11 hit in the middle of that process. We were just getting ready to deliver units. We had out of the 24, we had two thirds of them under contract. 9-11 hit all, but about four of the contracts blew apart. You know, remember the whole market tanked. I mean, so, but we, we went through it, man. We gutted it out. We trusted our instincts and our ability to work through it and work. I mean, I was working three jobs at the time, right? You just do what you got to do. Yeah. There are people who manage that. And there are people when they get that level of risk, they implode, right? They just emotionally can't handle it. They are doing, they're drinking way too much alcohol or doing whatever they're doing to cope. And uh, there are some people who implode, and uh, that was an incredible lesson I learned through that process. And uh, I've always been grateful for Mark in that regard. As far as the spiritual side, um, yeah, I would say that where that sort of weaves into my business experience is really more about a higher calling, meaning I've never been motivated by money. I, to this day, couldn't even tell you how much I have in a checking account. I don't know. I, I just, I've never been, you know, one of those, like, trying to hit a goal in money. I remember when I was doing just house brokerage, everybody would be like, this year, I'm going to try to do X number of, you know, dollars in transactions. And I'd be, I was always just like, I don't want to set those goals. I just want to try to help as many people as I can. And I'm trusting that it'll all work out. And that's the way I've always operated. And that. That I would say really does come from my, you know, if you want to call it that spiritual level where I know I'm going to be provided for no matter what on some level. And so mm-hmm. I'm not really stressed about it. Yeah, no. And, and that's a great perspective. And, and you definitely live that. I could feel that. I mean, when we talk, when we interact, I I mean, you're, you're true to that. You're not just saying that here on the podcast. So, so you get into this development world, right? And you've developed some amazing properties. So if, if you're listening to this and you've never been to Denver, uh, you have to go to the Highlands. The Highlands is a really cool neighborhood. And in the Highlands, you did like the Highlands Loft, you did Root Down, you did Linger, and then you had this little triangle, awkward little piece of uh, land, which we'll talk about, of how you developed that into a, a giant milk can. But what what's unique about your development is like when I walk into one of your properties like the quality is there and it, the thoughtfulness is there. It's, it's not just, and maybe that this goes back to your point of not caring about money because sometimes you go into developments or you go into construction projects and it's like, it's great, but then you'll see some parts of it where you're like, okay, they definitely cheaped out or there's some like budget cuts. And I, I get like, sometimes you have to follow a budget, but there's like shortcuts that are made and you can feel that in the design. But like when I walk into your property, like let's just take the factory, for example, I mean, that's a cool, cool property. I mean, you walk in, it just has this like feel, this vibe, it's well-designed, it's thoughtful. It it's, uh, it talks to the the user of the property instead of just like, oh, I'm going to build something that I want to build. You're, you're really empathetic in your design, if that makes sense. So where did that all come from? Is that something that you learned? Is that something that was just like inherently instilled in you, but like, where did you come up with this idea of design and quality and people centricity? 
I would say the the desire to do um, something of maybe a greater quality, if that's quality is the right word, but of a, a, a higher aesthetic, yeah, probably was instilled in me by my brother, who is all about aesthetic, <laughs> everything, these fastidious to the point of exhaustion at times. Uh, but I remember as a kid, I would watch him work on things. And um, I'm sure that on some level instilled in me this like, okay, I get it. To do that level of something, you really have to be focused on it. And it has to be your goal. And you don't stop on it until you're done. Um, and then I've always, I, I honestly, as a kid, I went to this place. It was called the Soda Straw. And it was this and I, I remember I only went there probably three times in my whole life because it was pretty expensive. And, you know, like, uh, I don't even, I don't even think I, I think I went by myself with some buddies because I, you know, collected all my paper route money and we went, but it was like, it was when the first time I went in there, it was so over the top of an experience for me as a kid that I just was like, oh my God, it just was next level. And so it was an ice cream store that had candy everywhere and stuff moving in the air and windmills and people running around with whistles and balloons. And it was just so over the top. It's like, you know, it was like a old soda fountain, but just on steroids, you know, kind of a mixed with an amusement park mixed with uh, music. And I mean, it was just incredible. And I remember just being so moved by that experience. And it was not like anything else. That's the other thing. Mm -hmm. And that sort of leads me to what I'd say is part of my ethos. And I think has become part of little man's ethos, which is that, you know, familiarity destroys wonder. In other words, nowadays people, because they're so risk adverse, they want to copy what the next guy did or gal whoever it is because it worked for them and so they're thinking let's just do that yeah because i it i don't have to take as much risk and i think because of that you know the uh the great author and poet wendell berry said one time that he drove across the united states and he didn't recognize a city along the way and i think that's because everywhere you go every every exit has a a chain store, a collection of chains that have yeah. just sort of like, you know, sort of, uh, you know, just dominate the landscape and dominate our soul on some level, right? Sure. That, yeah, I, I do think the built environment really has an effect on our psyche yeah. and on our desire to want to live in these beautiful places or live in these places that are not beautiful, that are, these you know curb cuts everywhere and concrete and no landscape and just these kind of not great places um, which yeah. is why i think we all gravitate to mexico and europe and all these places that were built in a different way that we just you can breathe in those spaces you're inspired as you walk around every day yeah and so i hope on some level i'm trying to do that with these little you know it's a privilege to to work and build a city. And I hope on some level we're trying to do that with the development side and little. Man. Well, so th let's talk about that and let's introduce little man here. 
So the Highlands neighborhood, you have this weird shape. I don't know what you call it. It's kind of like a triangle, right? Like a awkward lot. And you're sitting there, you're considering, okay, do I build an office here? Do I build, you know, X, Y, Z, what do I do? And then you end up building a giant milk can. And talk a little bit about that. And you, you mentioned the word little man or that, that name there, what is little man? And maybe you could, you, you could talk a little bit more about that whole venture. Sure. Well, little man was my, my father's nickname, my sisters, you know, my dad was like five, he was probably five, seven at his peak. And uh, as he got older, you know, he just shrunk <laughs> like all of us do, uh, including myself. And uh, as he got a little bit older, my sisters teased him a little bit and they used to call him little man. And uh, it just became this term of endearment, right? It really was not a an offensive thing. It was like a sweet thing. And right. as he got older, he was just this sweet, you know, um, guy, but um so when we, I had this weird odd shaped lot, like you talked about um, between these two buildings. And, and I really felt like the space between those two buildings, it would be far better to like leave some space. So the buildings have some, you know, just some breathable area around them. And it, in my mind, it made a perfect location for like a communal plaza. Uh, we were right across the street from the park and and I thought, wouldn't it be great to do ice cream, right? Ice cream's always been a kind of a, a little bit of a part of my family. I remember as a kid, I would make it in competition with a couple of my buddies. Yeah. We'd make ice cream. and Who could make the best flavor? So I decided, let's do an ice cream store there. And I reached out to some friends of mine who are artists who also are were really instrumental in creating what Highland is today, this neighborhood. And they owned a couple of galleries here in town. And I had dinner over at their house and I was telling them, I really want to do some crazy building. Like I don't want to do, I was thinking like a giant milk bottle or so. I was always thinking, let's do something really fun, like really. And they turned me on to a book called California Crazy. And the book is a book that photographed and collected this collection of roadside architecture from the 20s, 30s, and 40s, where, you know, when people were taking road trips with their families, you would go to, you know, a gigantic donut that you would drive through to get donuts, or you would go to, you know, the Coney Island hot dog, which is a giant, you know, 70 foot hot dog or whatever. And it was, you know, all these really crazy things. And uh, in looking through that book, I really got inspired to do what is now the milk can. There was a milk can um, store in there that sold eggs and other things. And I I saw it and we took it to my architect and we kind of did our own spin on it and created what it is today. Yeah. Which, I mean, which just goes back to your whole ethos. I mean, because you could have easily just built a little one, two-story building, you know, just square building and you could have sold ice cream out of it. But instead you have this vision and you, you know, you have this higher calling, this, this belief that, you know, it is about the experience. It's about the nostalgia from when you were, you know, a child, you wanted to recreate that for future generations. I think that's just so cool. It's, and it's rare. I mean, it's rare that um, I come across that. Actually, I, I worked with a guy, his name's Mike, Mike Willingen. 
he had a company called Rock and Water in Denver, and he built like amazing water features, like massive mm-hmm. water features. And you know, for landscape companies, you can dig a <clears> hole, <throat> you could put some black rubber liner down, and you could build this rock pyramid where like unnaturally you just have like a little slope that comes up out of the ground. You have a pile of rocks and water spurting out of it. But he went far right. beyond that. He he had cranes and tractors. He brought in like giant boulders that were quarried out of the mountains and built these natural looking waterfalls and, and features. And he just loved it. And I, I remember when I was working with him, you know, there's times where, you know, I'd go out, uh, out on his job site and look at the design and I'm like, Mike, what the heck, dude, you, you dug a hole that's like two times the size of what you're selling to the customer, right? You're like, now the thing's like way bigger, you're way over budget on your materials. And he's like, I don't care. He's like, this is what needs to go here. This is like what this space is calling. And so I'm going to build it. And he would, he just want to care about like the money side of it. And what's interesting is that it's like counterintuitive where other companies are out there. They're trying to make a buck by, you know, putting in the cheapest material by making shortcuts. He would go over budget sometimes on jobs, but then the next job, somebody would come by and they're like, yeah, we want you to build a water feature. And he's like, okay, it's a hundred grand. They're like, no problem. No bids, no other bids, you know, didn't shop the competition. It wasn't about his website. It wasn't about his logo. You know, he's just yeah. this humble guy that has this calling in life to be like, this is what it is. And this is what I'm going to build. And I, I see that with you. And, and I think that's interesting to point out because I, I want to drive that point home for people who are listening to this, because going back to your point, there is this risk aversion because mm-hmm. people don't want to fail. So it's like, just copy what other people are doing. The internet, you know, you could use artificial intelligence to create a business for you, you know, and it looks yeah. like a thousand other businesses out there. So like, what, what is that? And how does somebody, somebody's listening to this and like, I want to be like Paul, Paul's my hero. How do they do that? <laughs> if they're sitting and thinking to themselves, well, crap, Paul, like I, I hear you, but back at the ranch, I got like a wife or a husband or a partner and I have yeah. kids and I have all this and I have a job and how do I just get the moxie required to just go follow my heart? Well, that's that's a great question. And I would say the answer is, you know, probably different for every person, right? You got to, um, you have to weigh out those assessments and those risks. But here's the one thing that I trust and I believe is that, first of all, we have to stop looking at failure as a negative thing, mm-hmm. right? I think, oh, what's that? <laughs> what's that thing where it's sort of like, um, yeah, experience is a cruel teacher because it gives the exam first and then the lesson, mm. right? Yeah. That's, that's how people look at failure, right? It's giving the exam first, I failed it, and then the lesson comes. <laughs> You know, yeah. everything else in life is you get the lesson first and then you take the exam, right? Yeah. But I really think that a failure is in the times and I have failed many times, but I I usually try to parlay that into a really teachable lesson so it helps avoid those things in the future. And then the second thing is this that more than money makers, I believe humans are meaning makers. And if you can tap into this place where they find meaning in what you do, 
I don't, people will pay any amount of money <laughs> to feel moved, right? And that's not a way of like trying to take advantage of something. I'm just saying it's a way that you'll be able to make a living if you move people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, or another way to put it is, you know, people always talk about, you know, the person with the best story in the room is the person who wins, right? Yeah. And if you can tell a story about your company through your design, tell a story about your company by what you produce, tell a story about your company by the water fountain you do in somebody's backyard that is so over the top that when I see it, I'm just like, I'm moved. I'm like, yeah. I-, I need to find this person and have them do something in my yard, right? Yeah, because I'm moved. So I, I'd like to meet your landscape guy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, he, he reminds me a lot of you, but so it, well, it. it's, it's interesting about talking about moving and the experience and everything else. So I had one of the, the president, he's a president of a company in, in the South and he is flying into Denver. And so I said, okay, well, you know, let me plan a night for you and let me show you what Denver's all about. So we, we met downtown. I can't even tell you what restaurant we went to now. Um, but I said, okay, after we have dinner, we're going to walk from 16th street mall. We're going to walk, we're going to walk across the park, walk across the bridge, and we're going to go up to the highlands. And I'm going to show you this ice cream spot. Cause I'm like obsessed with ice cream. Like everywhere I go, like every country I go to, I've been to 35 countries, every single country I go to, I have ice cream. That's just my thing. So he comes into town and I'm like, Hey, I got to show you this ice cream place. It's the best. So we'll have dinner. We'll walk over, you know, we'll stand in line, get ice cream. And then we'll be, you know, I'll take you back to your hotel and then, you know, you're on your way. So we did that and we got up there and it was like, I want to say it's like nine 30 or something like that on like a Wednesday, just during the week. And it just goes to show like, it, it just, it, People will come if you build it right. People will come. So we get there. The line is like massive. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this line is massive. It's like two or three people wide. And it's like all the way up the street. And, but if you go to Little Man, it's like that all the time. I mean, maybe not in the winter when it's like snowing and it's freezing cold out. But if you go there in the summer, it Mm -hmm. has this like magnetic, energetic type vibe. You know, you have like strung lights, you know, you have plants out on the, the little the patio that's set up and you know people yeah. are out there there's this energy it's this cool vibe the ice cream's like amazing and you created this whole experience which is interesting because you thought it's just going to be a side project where you're like yeah i'll do the side project maybe make a buck or two but then it actually turned to be this massively successful venture yeah well thank you it, it has really turned into you know a, a its own sort of, it's taken on a life of its own. We have this thing, you know, the line is is a thing, right? It's like, why would people stand there? I mean, from where Little Man is within a one mile radius, there's probably a hundred places to buy ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> right. Where there's no line. Um, and why would they stay in the line? Lauren and our director of operations, who you, whom you met, um, coined this thing called the six senses of little man. Mm-hmm. Uh, he and, and Dominic, who was our, our kind of regional manager. And, but what it really is and, and what I feel like we tried to do from day one by building a giant can is to create a buffet for the senses, mm-hmm. right? Where, um, you know, it's, it's like you have this incredible, you have this buffet where there's like 
there's, you know, people eating at the restaurant at Linger right above you, and there's that energy there. There is these giant neon signs around, and there's stuff going on. You have this huge can. There's, like, music playing. We have magicians and stuff who work the line in the summer just to do, just so you're while you're there, you're having fun. There's people taking selfies. There's plants. There's you know, just all of these things that literally the smell of waffle cones being made yeah. – is just that alone is like a, you know a buffet for the senses. Yes. Um, so you know what we really have tried to focus on, and we're always trying to like the team is just incredible at trying to find different ways to engage people. Right, so much um, of people's time right now is spent looking at their palm. Right. Yeah. Um, and. When you offer people that buffet for the, their senses, I think it's it's one of those moments where it delineates just everyday life from an extraordinary life. I hope. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I, no, I, I totally agree with that, and it it is an experience, and that's why there's a line, and that's why I was willing to stand in line with that president for, I think we sit in line for like 30 or 45 minutes and it was so worth it though. I mean, he was like, Oh yeah, that was like the best night ever. It, and it, it wasn't just about the ice cream. I mean, the ice cream's good, but it's that experience that he remembers, you know, just all those senses that, that were stimulated that night. And I think that's cool. Okay. So let me switch gears here. So you talk about, okay, you, you don't care about money. You know, you're not money focused. There's a financial aspect obviously to these projects. Cause if you're not making money, you're not you know, going to be able to develop these properties and so on and so forth. So let me ask you this. How important do you think financial intelligence is for business leaders, for managers, for owners? And what's the balance between being that MBA who's building this, you know, Excel spreadsheet with like these bells and whistles that will spit out yes or no answers on projects versus not having anything and just being like, oh, I don't know. Like, I don't know if my company's making money. I don't even know where we make money. And I mean, mm -hmm. well, what's the balance there and, and how important is, you know, financial IQ when it comes to business? <laughs> you know my I, take I, on it, but you're not going to offend me. You can, you can say, hey, uh, Steve. I'm working just... with um, a guy right now who's, um, I think Leon is in his late 70s, who is, arguably one of the best land planners in the world. I mean, he, you know, he's done projects for Prince Charles. He's done projects in Saudi Arabia. He's done, he's just a genius. He's written numerous books. If you're a land planner and you've studied planning at all, you've probably read his book, you know, the architecture of community. And in what the other day I was talking to him and he said, Paul, he said, most projects are not designed by architects. He said, they're designed by Excel. And I said, what, what, what do you mean? He said, because when somebody in one of those little teeny squares changes the formula to eliminate that little detail, you know, on, around a window, and if you're building 500 units, you just delete it. And the numbers work, yeah. But what does it do to the project, right? Yeah. Um, and as somebody who sits in a lot of rooms talking numbers um, with developers, I think I can't. 
I don't know anybody right now who would say that what's happening in our built environment is a positive, unless it's a giant civic project that has no budget, right? Right. Yeah. So I would say most people would say if you go to cities and you look at what's been built in the last 30 years, it, it, it will tell a story about the last 30 years that I don't think 100 years from now we're going to be proud of, hmm. right? Yeah. And I think a lot of that is motivated by simply looking at the bottom line of things, right? Yeah. And part of it is is that banks dictate that where they say, hey, you have to show that you can have, you have a 60% profit margin to the deal. Otherwise, we're not going to loan money on it. Yeah. Um, you know, big institutional investors, same thing. They're like, if we don't see this type of profit margin, we, we don't think we can loan on it. So there's, you know, all of these um, factors at play that cause tension to the design and it gets value engineered down. Yeah. Where literally the numbers are doing the design and not the creatives. That to me is a problem. And some of that, to get to your question, I believe is motivated by people who only study finance mm -hmm. without understanding the benefit of design. Yeah. Right? You know, things of quality have no fear of time, I believe. In other words, you know, I had a good friend of mine, Daryl, who uh, I just love this guy. And I remember as a young person, I said to him, I was like, very naively said to him, his, his one of his kids was getting into art. And I was like, oh, well, that's really great. But isn't she going to go to college and study la, 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 la? And he said, Paul, he said, she's doing like one of the most noble things you could do. He said, Paul, art makes life worth living. Hmm. Yeah. And and that from that moment, I always kind of looked at things a little bit different where I thought to myself, I can make money, yeah. right? Really, if making money is your only pursuit, that's a colorless occupation. Yeah. Um, so I think understanding, having a good sense of financial acumen is important, but if it's not balanced with what I I believe is even more important, you're you're lopsided. You're yeah. out of balance, right? Yeah. And I think we're way out of balance when it comes to what's going on in the built environment in the United States right now. Really, yeah. probably around the world. And I agree with that. And then, and I tell companies all the time. I say, look, strategy is not about driving profits. It's not about driving profits. It, a, a good strategy, a good business will generate profits. And so really profits are the result of a good strategy or the right ethos or the right approach. It's not the approach itself. And I, I think that's where people get confused as well mm. is that they think, like like, that. Hey, I'm going to go into business to make money. It's like, no, go into business. Cause you're passionate about something. Cause it aligns with your ethos. Cause you have this bigger like vision and you have like that meaning that you're talking about then the money's going to follow, like naturally going to follow. But if you just pursue the bottom line, then I don't know. I mean, you could do that. I guess some people, it works for some people, but that's not what I'm interested in. Um, and it, it's not what you're interested in as well. So let me, let me ask you one more thing before we wrap up, because this is really important. So part of your whole like 
your whole empire that you built or whatever you want to call it, empire. this whole ethos, <laughs> it, it's heavily rooted on like this humanitarian, helping people, like making the world a more beautiful place. Like you do it in real estate, you do it in little man, but you also do it in a humanitarian type perspective. Like little man, for example, has this program called scoop for scoop. So every time you scoop ice cream, you're giving it back. Like, but also you're not just like writing a check and sending it off and saying, Hey, I'm, I'm too busy. You're like out there traveling around the world and you've engaged in a lot of humanitarian experiences. Maybe you could share a little bit about that. And as you wrap that up, how can somebody listening to this where they're like, yeah, I want to be more involved in like humanitarian type effort. How do they even get started like that? Uh, well, <laughs> I kind of said a lot of things I, in that, but yeah, but yeah, well, that's good. I love that question. I remember when I was a young man, uh, there was a guy who, uh, I knew who owned a big, um, beer company distributorship and he was, you know, financially did incredibly well. And I remember I said to him one time, I said, Hey, Bill, man, I hope someday I can make some money so that I can donate the way you do. And he said, Paul, are you doing any kind of donation right now? And I said, no, I don't make enough money. He said, Paul, if you're not doing it now with what you make now, you won't do it when you make more. (laughs) And there was something in what I felt like he said to me was that philanthropy is about a set of values that don't change with the more or less money that you make. It's about the value of it. And that aligned incredible with what, you know, I feel like my parents lived out. I mean, my parents didn't have two nickels to rub together most of my life as a kid, but they always found a way to give back. Always found a way. My dad, my dad on Mondays would drive to six grocery stores in the area and he would pick up all the day old donuts and bread that they were going to pitch out. And he would then collect all of it and he would take it to the convent. He would take it to the homeless shelter. He would take it to the soup kitchen. He would, he just, that's, you know, if he didn't have the money, he knew he had ways to get things that were of value and share them. And then he also contributed financially and and with nothing, right? Yeah. Um, And that always struck me. And my mom, I always attribute this to my mom. I don't even really know if she's the one for sure who said it, but I, I know she repeated it to me and she said, Paul, volunteerism is the price you pay for being human. It should just be part of who you are. And that's how I look at philanthropy. Like our scoop or scoop program, well, we have a little thing we say about it in, you know, when you're at little man, we don't use our philanthropy as a marketing tool. Yeah. It is literally just something that you should do as business. And I tell my team, and I know my team believes it, is that that law of circulation, there is no amount of money you can put at marketing dollars that can have that level of benefit of return, hmm. right? There is just such inherent value in contributing to another human being that uh, in a way that you know is smart and beneficial and all those other things that go with it, but that you can you can't pay a marketing person to do that, right? Yeah. And then finally, and this is a great way to maybe wrap. I don't know if you have other questions, but I listened to um, an interview of the actor Nick Offerman, 
Um, he's the guy that was on Parks and Rec, and some some of your folks might recognize him. He's hilarious. He's a comedian. He's a but but he's also a philosopher and a woodworker, and he's a really interesting guy. And he wrote a book recently, and and it's this whole book about life and all this stuff. And at the very end of the book, on the back page, the last back of the last page, there's a quote um, from Aldo Leopold. And in the book, Nick says, or in the interview, he said, well, I figured that after all of the, that's in the book, if you don't get anything else, if you just take this one thing, it will have an effect. And the quote is this, it's that ethical behavior is doing the right thing when no one else is watching. And we've all heard that, right? Yeah. But there's yeah. an, an addition to the quote. And it says that ethical behavior is doing the right thing when no one else is watching, even when doing the wrong thing is legal. I feel like we're in this place right now where people are doing a lot of the wrong thing because they say it's legal, yeah, but it doesn't make it right. Yeah. Right. So, you know, I think that, you know, our, our interest in little man is not about putting our name on the side of buildings, you know, or whatever. It's about treating the people in our midst and in our everyday work and whatever we're doing with hopefully a level of dignity and respect and financial <laughs> remuneration for their work. Yeah. As we can. I, no, and I agree. I mean, and I mean, I could seriously go on for another hour. I can't believe that we're already at the end of the hour, Paul. And no, I just, no, you inspire me. And and I'm, I know you're going to inspire other people that are listening to this as well, because there's such a higher calling for us in life. And I think oftentimes we live below our potential and we have this fear or we don't take those risks or we yeah. try to be too calculated, whatever it is. But I believe that everybody inside them, like everybody inside them, they have this like beautiful soul that just needs to be manifested out there in the world, whatever it is, like yeah. whether it's real estate or whether, so whether you develop real estate or whether you do consulting or whether you're a banker, whether you own a flower shop or whether you're a landscaper, you're building water features, whatever it is, everybody can step up and live their higher calling. And, you know, I, I just think you're a walking example of it. And that's why I wanted you to be on the show. And I'm so glad that you committed to this because, oh my gosh, your touch is just widely felt, not just through the building that you're doing. That's just, that's a, a piece of it, but it's just your influence is is widely felt. And I just want to, you know, point that out and, and say, thanks for being on the podcast. Well, Steve, thank you very much. Those are very kind words. And um, I would I would tell you that, you know, and I explained this once about, and honestly, you were kind of the impetus for me thinking about this, but this kind of goes back to your question about financial acumen, but there are people who look at spreadsheets and <laughs> budgets and P&Ls and balance sheets, and they see a bunch of numbers, Yeah. right? Um, and I know I've shared this with you before, but, and then there are people like you who like a musician, right? You can hand a sheet of music to somebody and all they see is a bunch of dots and lines on a page. Yeah. Other people can look at a sheet of music and they can hear the melody in their head. That's where somebody like you with the level of acumen that you have, you look at numbers and it is literally the score for how that company is functioning in some way. And 
but with that level of respect for the creative piece of it, somebody like you has this incredible ability to to pull that score together and turn it into this, you know, symphonic like experience in a company where all of a sudden things are in rhythm and they're it, it's it's moving in a way that is you know profitable and holistic and beautiful and has integrity and you know so I have a lot of respect for the work that you do and your skill level in it and uh, am grateful for this time today. Oh my gosh, Paul, that that was so kind. Thank you so much for saying that. No, it, it's it's seriously been a pleasure. And for everybody who's listening, thanks for tuning in um, to this episode. And um, until next time, take care of yourself and. Go out there and, and, you know, you, you pick up these new tidbits that are shared in each of these episodes, but like go out there and execute on them. That that's my advice. So take care of cheers. Hey, real quick. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you have business questions and you want to be featured on this podcast, send me an email at contact at cultivar.com and either type out your question or send a video or voice recording stating your name, your location, and what's on your mind. If you want to increase your financial intelligence, be sure to check out my other podcast called Boosting Your Financial IQ. All right, you have new knowledge. Go out there and execute. And until next time, cheers. Hey, real quick. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you have business questions and you want to be featured on this podcast, send me an email at contact at cultivar.com. And either type out your question or send a video or voice recording stating your name, your location, and what's on your mind. If you want to increase your financial intelligence, be sure to check out my other podcast called Boosting Your Financial IQ. All right, you have new knowledge. Go out there and execute. And until next time, cheers. Cheers.